The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We've been in the book of Galatians for a long time, almost, I think about 10 or 11 months. For me, at least, with the completion of the book comes a sense of accomplishment. Like, it's like, okay, we got through the whole book. We, we got through this whole letter, and we took our time, and we hopefully understood at least some of the things that Paul was trying to convey to the churches of Galatia. But it also brings about circumstances for myself that involve a very difficult decision. And for me, that is, what do I do next? Where do I go next? And Galatians seemed like an obvious choice because I'd been in the book of Acts for so long and it was Paul and, and I'd seen Paul all, you know, all the way along, even starting these churches in Galatia, we followed his story. And so the next thing to do just made sense to go into one of the letters that Paul wrote. And we were already introduced to the character and, and it just seemed to flow. I don't know why, I never had trouble making the decision to go to the book of Galatians. But now that we're at the end of it, it's like, what do I do? And so I threw around some ideas with different people. I talked about the book of James and the book of Titus and the book of 1 John and the book of 1 Peter and really didn't know what, which one to choose. And I tried to talk to Pastor Dressler about it. And it's, it's a problem talking to Pastor because he actually likes all of the books of the New Testament. And so, so whatever you say, it's like, oh man, that's a great book. You should do that one. That'd be awesome. And it's like, well, what about this one? Oh man, that's a great book. It'd be so good if you did that one. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of narrowed it down to two books. I was, I was flipping between 1 John and 1 Peter. And I sat, we, Tara and I sat down about a month ago and said, Tara, we're both going to read both of these books. And then at the end of them, you tell me what you think I should preach next. And I'll tell you what I think I should preach next. And hopefully just, I mean, we were praying about it and asking the Spirit to, to lead. And at the end of it, we both had the same conclusion. And so that's a good sign. And so we're going to start this evening the book of 1 Peter. And we'll be in First Peter for probably the next eight or ten months. But, and you'll, you'll understand why in a second, because when I opened up the book of First Peter and when I got to studying it, the first line is, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that is, it's written there because it shows his authority. He's an apostle. He's a sent one, a messenger of Jesus Christ. So he has the authority of Jesus Christ. He's coming, he's writing on behalf of Jesus to the, uh, the Jews that are scattered abroad. That's, that's enough for us. That's enough to know that this was written as the authority of Jesus. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so we should listen to whatever it says. But I got to thinking about how much I enjoyed getting to know Paul prior to getting into Paul's writing of the book of Galatia. And I thought, yes, having Peter write it is enough, but I I think that if we can really get to know Peter well prior to getting into this book, then it might help even more. And so then I decided that rather than just jumping right into 1 Peter, we would do a five or six week thing on the life of the Apostle Peter. And I just want to look at Peter's life, take out some of the important events in his life, and we'd look at those and we'd get an idea of who this Peter is. I, I know most of you already know and, and we're already acquainted fairly well with Peter, but I'm looking forward to knowing Peter really well and then getting into what Peter wrote. And so that's, that's my plan, um, and hopefully you'll be on board. Turn your Bibles to the book of John, John's Gospel in chapter 1. And this evening I have two goals in mind. The first one is to understand the circumstances of Peter's call to the ministry. And that might sound like a very easy task, but it's actually more difficult than you might think because there are four Gospels, 
And each of the Gospels provide for us what could be an account of Peter's call to the ministry. And two of the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, are very, very similar in their account. But the Gospel of Luke is quite different. There's, there's some similar circumstances, but there's a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different um, aspects to that call. And so it just, it almost seems like it's not the same event, the way Luke writes it. And then you get into the Gospel of John, and you get a completely different account of this event. And so what I'm hoping to do tonight is to discover the circumstances and to kind of work our way through this so we understand exactly how that Paul was called. So that's like the teaching part of this evening. The second goal, and probably the more important goal, is that I hope that we can learn something about Peter's call to the ministry that will be instructive and encouraging for us. As we see Peter called to follow Christ, that we would, we would see how Peter's call to follow Christ can instruct us in our own call to follow Christ. What it means. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I mean, certainly I believe most of us in here would call ourselves disciples of Christ. We are followers of Christ. But what exactly did that mean to Peter? And what does that mean to us? And then I believe as we look at Peter and his life and his failings, that we would be encouraged. And we, when we think of Peter, we often just label Peter as he was the guy with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He always said the wrong thing. Or, but when I was thinking about how Peter would view himself, I thought, I believe Peter would be a guy, when he looked at himself, he would say, I am not what I wish I was for Christ. I think he always seemed to have these wonderful intentions, and I believe he was so sincere in all of this. But when he actually looked at how he, how he acted, I think he, he struggled with it. I think he was so upset at himself for what he viewed as letting down Christ so many times. Because, I mean, when you go through his life, that's what it is about. It's him failing over and over again. And it's about God's grace in his life. And so I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, that is, that is me. I'm the guy who, I, mean, I wish I was more. I wish I was better. I wish I was a better father. I wish I was a better youth pastor. I wish I was better at the things that God had called me to do. But I fail. And so I see myself in the life of Peter. I hope you will too. I hope you'll be instructed and encouraged. So we'll begin reading this evening in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 40. Let's actually back up. We'll look at verse 29. I, I want to get the setting here really quickly. So the setting is, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist has just proclaimed in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That is who Jesus is. And John is the first one to announce the world that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Lamb of God, that he has come to take away the sins of the world. And so all of John's disciples hear this. And then in verse 35 John writes, again, the next day after John stood and two of the disciples. So this baptism happens. Now we have the next day. Two of the disciples are there. Verse 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, Lamb of God. So again, it's the next day. He's already made this proclamation. The disciples beside him have already heard it, but he's, now he's saying it directly to them, saying, hey, listen, you remember what I said yesterday? This is the Lamb of God. Verse 37, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And that was John's ministry. He was pointing people to Christ so that others would follow Christ. He didn't want a mass following for himself. And that is a great reminder for any of the, us who are leaders. It's not about us, and it's not about people following us. It's about us pointing people to Christ. And so he points them to Christ, the Lamb of God, and so they follow Jesus. Verse 38, Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, 
what seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Where, where are you living? Where are you staying? He saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and they spend the rest of the afternoon hanging out with Jesus. And they're in Judea at this time. In verse 40 it says, And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so we get a, a bit of information about Peter here, and that is that Andrew, his brother, was already a follower of John the Baptist and presumably had ended up in Judea because he was following John the Baptist in his ministry. So maybe John the Baptist had been in Galilee for a while and then he'd moved down to, to uh, Judea and Andrew had followed. And it's possible that Peter was one of the unnamed uh, disciples here as well. Or it's possible that Peter was just kind of around, that, that he just happened to you know, go on the trip with his brother, not for any reason. But in whatever case, um, Andrew comes and he finds Simon Peter and he says unto him in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which be, is being interpreted the Christ. We have found the one that the whole Old Testament points to. We have found the one we've been waiting for. We have found the one who's going to deliver us. We have found the Son of God. What an incredible exclamation for Peter to hear. And so naturally, Peter wants to go see him in, in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And so this seems like the very first time that Peter has ever laid eyes on Jesus. He comes to meet Jesus, and Jesus looks at him intently in the eyes and says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. That's who you are. Apart from me, you are, you're Simon. Your father is Jonah. You're a fisherman. That's who you are. But you will be Cephas. What an incredible prophecy. What an incredible thing that Jesus looked at Peter, who was just a fisherman, who nobody would else would see anything other than a rough and gruff fisherman. And he says, you are going to be Peter. You're going to be Cephas. You're going to be a stone, a rock. Okay? And you know what's amazing? When you look at Peter's life for so long, that seemed like an insane thing to say. And he seemed like the opposite. He seemed like a, a bottle of water that just wishes and washes and he's got all these great intentions and he, he flounders and it, he doesn't seem like a rock. And yet eventually we see in Peter's life this prophecy coming true. And so it's an incredible thing that Jesus says to him. And, and, and in this case here, we don't even see that, that Jesus is even calling Peter to anything. Right? He's given him a new name, a new identity. It seems like Peter must have recognized that this really was the Messiah. And so he says, you're going to be Cephas. But he doesn't say, follow me. He doesn't say anything like that here in the book of John. And so the distinctive features here is that they're in Judea. That Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. It's possible that Peter was, was as well. That Andrew gets Peter and tells him that he found the Messiah. That, that it's Simon or that it's Peter that comes to Jesus. And when Jesus sees Simon, he looks him in the eye and says, you are Simon, you will now be Peter. So that is the first John's record of maybe how, how Peter followed Christ as a disciple. Now turn your Bibles to the book of Mark. Because what's missing here is that there's no call to a ministry, there's no mention of discipleship or following Christ, and all we have here is a new identity by name, but not a new identity by occupation or by purpose. Right? He had a new name, but he didn't have a new purpose. He didn't have a new occupation. And so the book of Mark, 
I believe, takes place after this first meeting in the book of John. And so Jesus has recently endured the 40-day temptation. He's baptized. I believe he meets Peter. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days. He comes out. That's, that's happened recently. And then he travels all the way up to Galilee. So he travels north to Galilee. And Mark chapter 1, verse 16 picks up that story. It says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And so now Andrew and Peter seem to be back on their home turf. The baptizing that was happening in the Jordan in Judea must be over at this point. Probably a few months have passed. And now both of those guys are back doing their, their daily job. What they've been doing since they were kids, what their father did, the, the family business, fishing. So they're back there. They live in Capernaum. They were originally from Bethsaida. And Bethsaida and Capernaum are both very small fishing villages close by to one another. And the population of both those villages is somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 people. And both of them are about two miles or so from the Sea of Galilee. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, that's like almost the exact definition of Merlin, right? It's close to Lake Erie, a couple miles away. It is, population I think is 750 or 1,000 people. And, and one of the things that marked Capernaum and Bethsaida is that it, they were kind of like, they were fishing villages, they were blue-collar villages. They weren't prestigious. They weren't pretty. They weren't, there was nothing, nothing that would draw you to them if you wanted, you know, you're a super high-class person. You, they were just, they got by fishing. You know, poor folks that just got by. I'm not saying everybody in Merlin's like that. Um, but there are some similarities. Um, <laughs> and so fishermen these days were not known for their cleanliness. They were not known for their class. They were generally uneducated, uncultured, gruff men who smelled like fish and spoke like sailors. That's generally what these fishermen would have been like. But they're hardworking people. They're, they're blue-collar folks from a nice little village. And the point of this is just to say that if you were picking a team, a dream team, that would go and change the world, that would turn the world upside down for the gospel, you wouldn't go to either of these places. You wouldn't end up in Bethsaida. You wouldn't end up in Capernaum. Why? They're just not the people you choose for a team like that. And so Jesus ends up walking by the Sea of Galilee as these two guys, Simon and Andrew, are casting their net into the sea. Mark chapter 1, verse 17 says, And Jesus said unto them, Come you after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Jesus looks at these guys who are the last ones you'd ever pick, and he says, hey, you two, come after me. Come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want to make it clear, we don't want to read too far into this, you're going to be a fisher of men. Because I've heard people do this where they go like, oh yeah, fishing and evangelism are like the same thing. And so we can, we can use the same you know, tactics we use in fishing to catch people. And so you've got to set the bait right, and you have to have the right hook, and then you have to pull right at the right time. And, and if you do all these things right, you can just catch a lot of men. Um, that's, I don't think that Jesus isn't giving a lesson on evangelism here. What he's saying is, I have something new for you to do. You spent your lives catching fish. Now you're going to spend your lives going after the souls of men. And so there's this, this new opportunity for them. And, and Jesus is commanding here. He's saying, come and follow me. He's not providing them another option. He's not saying, hey guys, if you're bored of your fishing, here's another idea. You can do this for a little while and see how it works. It's a command. Come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And so in verse 18, 
Andrew and Peter respond. It says, straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Now the response of Andrew and Peter here is the right one. It's one of immediate, complete obedience. And if we were to continue to read on with Mark, we would hope to find that from that point forward, Andrew and Peter stick by the side of Jesus. But it's, it's interesting what, what ends up happening. And, and we have to kind of piece different Gospels together here to get the full story, which is wonderful why we have the, the, the four Gospels. But when you try and harmonize these accounts, what you find happening next in the book of Mark is that you find Jesus healing a man who's demon-possessed, and then he becomes very famous in Galilee. He teaches in all the synagogues. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, he heads over to Simon and Andrew's house. And when he gets to their house, he finds out that Simon, or Peter's, mother-in-law is sick. And so he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And when we take that event and we we find the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we look at the book of Luke and we find the exact same account happen in Luke chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. And so here, Jesus heals Peter and mother-in-law. We continue that story and we find in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, what seems like another account of Jesus calling these guys to ministry. And so the question is, what's going on here? Are these guys really flip-flopping with their timelines? Because the truth is, the apostles that wrote the Gospels, they did not set out to provide a perfect chronological account. That wasn't their purpose, okay? Their purpose was, and many times they did, and they did provide accurate history, but that wasn't their primary goal. And so there are some times that, that Matthew groups together different teachings of parables, or sometimes different miracles are grouped together because the the writer is trying to make a point that's bigger than just the chronological order. So is that what's happening here? Well, I don't actually think so. I think right now we can follow this account and there is something else that happens again with, with Peter and Andrew. Because listen to this story and you'll see that, that details are quite different. We'll be in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It says, And it came to pass that As the people pressed upon him, so he's been teaching and preaching, still in Galilee, and people are flocking to see him now. He's done miracles. And so there's so many people that they're pressing upon him to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And that lake is is another word for the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. They're all words for the same body of water. And so he's again around the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 2 it says, He saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. So you get the story now. It's, it's, it's quite a bit different from what we have in Mark and in Matthew. This time, Jesus comes to the lake. There's so many people that he needs to step back. And he steps back and he's, you know, his, his feet are in the water. And he's like, hey, listen, I got an idea. Uh, Peter, you're here. You just finished fishing. You finished washing your nets. Why don't you take your boat and let me cast out a little bit so I can be on the boat and teach the people as they're on the shore? And so Simon Peter goes, yeah, okay, that's a great idea. Jesus, hop in my boat. Verse 4. It says, now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon. So he's finished speaking to this whole crowd of people. Everybody's dispersed. He takes Simon aside and he says unto him, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering him said, Master, we have toiled all the night, and we have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Peter, Peter looks at him and says, Jesus, come on, man. You're a carpenter. Okay? 
We've been fishing all night. We've been doing this for a long time. We know what we're doing. But if that's what you want me to do, Jesus, I'll do it. And so reluctantly, Peter gets back in his boat and, and casts his net on the other side. Verse 6, And when they had, done, when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net break. Now, I would be under the assumption that these guys who are fishermen would know how strong their nets need to be for a good number of fish. I mean, they're not expecting to every once in a while have so many fish that their net breaks. And so this is just an insane number, a, a net full of fish like they've never had before. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the ship, that they should come and help them. I think their partners were probably James and John. And they came and filled both ships so that they began to sink. <laughs> you think the boats are going to be designed two ships now, sinking because there's so many fish. Can you picture this scene? Just an incredible, awesome miracle. Uh, again, Jesus showing his divinity. So the ships are sinking. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, now his response to me is a little bit strange. I would expect him to just be in awe of Jesus. Be, wow, Jesus is so cool. That's awesome. I, I'm sorry I questioned you. That's, that's amazing. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This happens. And, and rather than just being so into the moment of this miracle and excited, for some reason, the impact this has on Peter is that he looks inward at himself. And he sees who he is, and he sees who he's been. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he grabs onto his knees. He grabs onto the bottom of his legs and he says, Jesus, you need to leave. You need to get away from me. I'm so sinful. And didn't we hear this morning that that's the perfect prayer? I mean, not even look, lifting up your eyes to heaven, but smiting upon your breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That, that's it. That's how we come to Christ. And so it seems like, though this is such a strange response, this is exactly what Peter needed to do. This is exactly the place that Peter needed to get to before he would really follow Christ the right way. Now, yes, I know Peter's going to mess up. I know it's not perfect from here. But from this point forward, he doesn't go back to fishing until after Jesus is resurrected. Right? And so it's, it's an incredible thing that he does here. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of fishes that they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon, and Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And that's a great line, I think, because it's like, I, I know, I, I know, Peter, I know how you feel, but you don't need to be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And, and the fact that he said almost the exact same words as he said the first time is actually an encouragement. Because it seems like Peter went back to fishing, right? It seems like, like oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll come and follow you. And they get up and they leave their stuff and they follow him. And, and then a few weeks later, he's back fishing. And he's just, you know, gone through a whole night of fishing. And Jesus is the one that's still out on mission. He's still on in ministry and he's preaching, he's teaching. And so he finds Peter again. He says, Peter, can I use your boat? Peter, cast the net on the side of the ship. Peter, it's okay, fear not. Peter, I want you to come and follow me. I want to make you fishers of men. The exact same command. That's an encouraging thing because we all blow it. Verse 11, And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. 
Here in this account, we have Jesus preaching to a crowd. We have the crowd dispersed. We have Peter asking, or Jesus asking Peter to go fishing. And we have, ultimately, Peter understanding who he is in light of who Christ is. And Jesus saying, yes, now, now you're at the point. Now you need to come and you need to follow me. And so that P- Peter and Andrew and James and John forsook all and they followed him. Now, I know, I know tonight we've gone through a lot of different stories. We've gone through a lot of scripture. We've covered a lot of ground. And there's many, many lessons we could probably get from these passages. Um, Peter's stories and Peter's call are not so different from ours. What happened in this story, it, it seems unique, and it is unique in one sense that it's Jesus physically going to him. I'll tell you something, his call, what he expected Peter to do, and, and even how he called him wasn't so unique from the way he calls us. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to think of discipleship. I want to think of what, talk about what discipleship means in our lives. So I want to give you three points about discipleship. So we asked the question, what is a disciple? Well, the truth is, making disciples is one of the, the ultimate goals of this church. And so what we want to see happening in this church is making disciples. And in fact... If this church is doing everything well, but we're not making disciples, I don't even know if we could call ourselves a church. Maybe a great program, a great club, doing some good things, nice things, but certainly not a church because the the goal of the church is to make disciples. Why? Because disciples are people who simply follow Christ. There are some times in the Gospels where it refers specifically to the 12 apostles, but that's rare. Usually in the Gospels, when it's referring to the disciples— It refers to the people who follow Jesus more closely than those who follow him for his miracles. So it's in contrast to those who know about Jesus and believe in Jesus, and they like the good things that Jesus does, but they're not true disciples. They're not true followers. They don't follow him through thick and thin. They don't don't follow him into the suffering and out of the suffering. they're, They're the fans of Jesus, those other folks, the disciples are the true followers of Christ. And so the goal of this church is to create followers for Christ. So what are the three truths about discipleship that we can clearly see here in the life of the Apostle Peter? Number one, discipleship has a clear summons. There's a clear call to discipleship. Jesus' call is clear to us. It is to follow him. It is not to attend church. It is not to be religious. It is not to follow rules. It is not to follow a set of laws. It's not just to be a groupie. It's not just to wear a Jesus t-shirt or have a fish on your vehicle. Being called as a follower of Christ, being called as a disciple, has a very clear summons, and it is to follow him. It's not just to do certain things. It's not just to, to represent something outwardly. It's to follow him. I think Christianity has become somewhat mix, mixed up. And, and people call themselves Christians simply because they believe that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago and his name was Jesus. Do you believe Jesus existed? Yes. Okay, therefore I'm a Christian. Listen, that is not Christianity. That's not at all Christianity. That's just you're a decent historian, maybe. Right? The Christianity, Christians... Those that take the name of Christ are followers of Christ. They try and think like him and act like him. They believe what he believed. They believed what he believed about Scripture, right? 
you're following Jesus. It may mean a loss of material goods. It doesn't matter when you're following Jesus. It might mean you lose position or you lose prominence. It did for a lot of these guys. Maybe not Peter and Andrew. They didn't really have a whole lot of position. But guys like Paul, he lost a lot when he became a disciple, a follower of Christ. Position and prominence. It might mean at times a loss of physical health. There might be persecution. You might be hurt. You might even lose your life. But when you follow Christ, you're not following him for all the stuff he's going to give you and how much better it's going to get. You're following Christ because of who he is. The God-man, the Messiah. And so discipleship is, has a very clear summons. Number two, discipleship is all about a person. He said, follow me. And that means accepting the authority of Christ in your life. And that is absolutely key to understand. Because what we tend to do is we tend to follow Jesus as long as it makes sense to me. As long as that's something I'm willing to give up, right? And so when, when I talk about discipleship, when it is accepting the authority of Jesus in my life over and above my own authority, that mean, means when it comes to things that I don't understand, I say, Jesus, I don't understand, but I trust. I don't understand, but I obey. There are some things that, that I don't understand. There are some things about this life that are, that are difficult. We are tested where the battle is. And so when you look at your life and you say, yeah, I'm a great Christian because I do all these things. I, you know, I, I love going to church. That's good. You should love going to church. But listen, you loving going to church doesn't make you a good Christian. You've got to find that area of your life that you struggle with. Find that area of your life that is so difficult for you to give up. And when you find that area, you'll find out whether you're following Christ or not. Because it's that area we're tested. Listen, I, don't, I remember the last time I was tempted to go get drunk. I, I can't tell you the last time. I know there's some people that struggle with that. I don't. And so I wouldn't measure my Christianity on how often I get drunk. But there's some things I am tempted to do. And so if I want to say, am, am I really following Christ? And I look at the areas of my life that I struggle and I say, am I surrendering to his authority rather than mine? Okay? I think it was Casting Crowns. They wrote a song called, and they said that we're fearless warriors in a picket fence. Reckless abandon wrapped in common sense. And that is so many of us. We have this reckless abandon for Jesus as long as we're in church. <laughs> but then we have this, this, our own common sense, our own rationale that takes over and says, okay, Jesus, if I give up this, this is just too much. I'm going to keep this area of my life. This is, this is my part, but you can have all this other stuff. And that's not truly following Jesus, right? Following Jesus is taking that part that's really hard that we really grasp onto with all of our might, and following Jesus is saying, okay, Lord, it's yours. And so it is about a person that's recognizing his authority and it's following his example. What is discipleship about? It's about looking at Jesus, looking how he lived, looking how he loved, looking how he thought, looking how he acted, looking how everything he was doing was to glorify himself, glorify God, and trying to act that way. Right? He said, do unto others as I have done unto you. And so we look at Jesus' example and we try and live like him. And that, it sounds, I don't know, it sounds simple, it's, it's so obvious, and it's so, so rare. And so, true disciples of Christ follow him. They follow his examples. Discipleship is a clear summons. It's to follow. It's about a person. It's to follow Christ. 
And finally, discipleship is a process. Discipleship is a process. It is not a one-time decision. And we find that in Peter's life because it seems like he made that one-time decision. And then a few months later, he had to make that decision again. And Maybe this time he realized that it wasn't a one-time decision because this time he was looking at his failures and he's seeing that Jesus wants him to follow him in spite of his failures. And so what happens with discipleship is that you take steps forward and you fail and then you take steps forward again. And you get back up and you keep following Christ. It's a process. And, and unfortunately, I think what happens sometimes is that, is that we push people to make decisions so hard that they make the decision and then very soon they fall off of the wagon. They fall back into their old ways and all of a sudden they think that now they've lost it. They're done. They're toast. They, they, they didn't hack it. And, and that's a big problem because... We need to teach people that, that you, t- you follow Christ. You take one step at a time, and when you fall off, then you get back up. Okay? J- Joshua said that this, um, cho- choose you this day whom you will serve. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that was a choice they had to make that day. But can I tell you something? His house and the houses of those people there that day that shouted that they would serve the Lord, one generation later, were far, far from the Lord. Why? Because that one day didn't change the next generation. It's daily living out your faith that doesn't. And so discipleship is a process. It will involve a number of failures. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will find yourself saying with Peter, depart from me for I am a sinful man. The more you get close to Jesus, the more you will realize how little you deserve to be a disciple. And you keep following him. This church is only as good as we are able to facilitate discipleship making. If we, can, if we can help with the discipleship making process, then we're a good church. And I don't mean for you to, to assess the programs and the leadership. I think what, what I'm trying to say here is, you folks, me, how do we as people help facilitate the discipleship making process in one another's lives? How are we trying to follow Christ? How are we trying to push our brother and our sisters and the other folks in this church toward Christ? That's what discipleship is about. That's what the church is about. And that's what your life should be about because you are the church, part of the church. Jesus took these misfits and after intense discipleship, he turned them loose to turn the world over for the gospel. He took these guys who nobody would ever choose, but with the Holy Spirit and with three years of failure and, and proving who he was and, and encouraging them and teaching, they went out and they really they made an impact. They, they gave their lives for the gospel. And that is what we're supposed to do. We take people who are misfits, who don't seem like the most incredible and talented, wonderful people ever, and we point them to Christ and we keep pointing them to Christ. And ultimately we hope that they will they will catch it, that they will, the Spirit will work in their hearts so that they go on to make more disciples for Christ as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There are different types of dying. I think within that, there are different types of dying. He's speaking about your life. You come and die, and there are certainly going to be different paths that we go on. There are different types of dying, it is true, but the essence of discipleship is contained in these words. So can we say 
that we've come to Christ and we've said, Lord, you can have it all. Lord, I'll follow you completely. Lord, I am dead to myself. Christ came with a radical message and then a radical call. And these four responded in radical obedience. And Peter's call, it's not different than ours. We are called to follow Jesus. When it says he forsook all and he left, there is no person that's called to forsake less. We are all called to forsake whatever he calls us to forsake for him. For Peter, that meant traveling around with Jesus. Maybe for you, it's just living out your faith in your house and living it out at work and living it out at your school. But your life is about following Jesus. And so give up all those other things that pull you away and follow Christ. That's what discipleship is. That's what this is all about. And we see in Peter's life a wonderful example of a guy who is flawed like you and I, but who made a huge difference for the gospel and who was used in a great way by God because he forsook all and followed him. Let's pray.